Good morning, church. Man, it's so good to see all of you this morning. Uh, I missed you. My wife and I took a little uh, anniversary trip last week, and so I wasn't here last week. And it's so good to be back with my Fusion City Church family. Uh, If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you because today is your first time, let me say a special welcome to you. We really like new people here at Fusion so much that we'd really like to get to know you. And the way that we make that happen is that we'd like to get just a little bit of information from you in exchange for a gift. That's right. We'll give you a gift just for showing up for the very first time. Now, how you get that is if you'll take just a little bit of time during the service to fill out the bottom portion of your program that you got when you came in. We call that a connection card. If you'll take that to the hub, we have a gift there for you. Again, just our way of saying Thanks for hanging out. We're really glad that you chose to come on and hang out with us for the very first time. If this is your first time, uh, you've caught us in uh, week four of a series that we started four weeks ago called The Five Solas. And what we've been talking about for the last several weeks are these five central truths to the Protestant Christian faith that separates us from what would known to be the other mainstream Christian religion, which would be Catholicism, or or specifically in this case, Roman Catholicism. And uh, around the year 1516, 1517, there was this monk named Martin Luther. We heard a little bit about him in the video. Uh, He honestly, unknowingly and and not on purpose, started something that we now know to be the Protestant Reformation. And out of this Protestant Reformation came five central truths for every church that that would then call themselves Protestant, so Christian but not Catholic. There are these five central truths to that belief system. And we've been walking through those for the last several weeks. We started with um, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And then we talked about the authority of Scripture, sola scriptura, which is Scripture alone. Last week, again, I was out, and Cameron, one of our uh, board members and Connect Group facilitators, I listened to the podcast, did a fantastic job walking us through sola gratia, which is by grace alone. And today, I want to talk about sola fide, which is through faith alone. Now, Uh, Myself and a couple of guys, uh, Cameron's one of those guys, actually, we get together uh, about once a month or so. We call ourselves the sermon planning team because we we think that makes us sound important. We're the sermon planning team. We have a big responsibility. And what we do is we plan sermons because we like to be really creative in what we call our teams here at Fusion City Church. So the sermon planning team, we get together every month and we plan the sermons for the, the, the series or the series or so that's upcoming and we kind of talk through and get some ideas about what we want it to look like and sound like and some of the content that we want to communicate uh, during that series. So in our sermon planning meeting for this series, we were, we were really trying to answer just a couple of questions um, and one of those questions being that for why the five solas, like, like why are these things important? And then we wanted to answer the question, why are they an, an only or an alone? If it's to the glory of God alone, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, which we're going to talk about next week. If all of these are alone or only, what makes them so special that they have to be an only or an alone? And so through the process of our educating one another and kind of getting a a grasp on what we were going to talk about in this series, we came up with the illustration, and it kind of seemed silly at first, 
But the more that we talk through it, the more sense that it seemed to make to us. And so I want to share with you today the illustration that we used in our little meeting to help us understand um, why each of these was and only and how they were differentiated one between the others. And so when you came in today, uh, there's a mint, a Fusion City Church mint in your seat. That was twofold reason. Um, one, actually threefold reason, three, three reasons for the mint. One, um, it's because I'm going to give you a mint illustration in a minute. Two, because we could all use a little freshening, can't we? I mean, let's be honest, it's going to make church a whole lot more pleasant after all of you eat the mint that was in your seat. And number three, uh, for the latecomers, when you just sat down, see, you came in when the lights were off and you didn't know there was a mint in your seat, you're welcome for the little bump in your bum. All right, so uh, you got a mint that was in your seat, and here's why the mint is significant. I am going to attempt to use the illustration of a breath mint to teach you about the five solas. <laughs> Hang on for this. You're going to love it. All right, so let's say that you have bad breath. Let's just assume, for some of us it's true, God is aware of your condition. Now, now Cameron did a really great job last week of teaching us that sin is much more than a bad breath condition. Sin is not just a sickness. Sin is a death. So, so let's, let us not forget that our sin carries a tremendous amount of weight, even though I'm going to compare it to bad breath. All right, so let's imagine or let's assume that, that, we, that you have bad breath. You have a condition that is ill-fated. God, in knowing your condition, offers you a gift because you need it. And God knows that you need it. And, and you, you don't, you don't know how to fix your bad, like you can't fix your own bad breath problem. Like you can't just, bad breath doesn't just go away, right? There has to be something, there has to be a cause that affects your breath to make it go from bad to good. Can we agree? In the same way, in the same way, you have no ability to correct your own sin problem. If it were not for the gracious gift of your heavenly father, your breath is going to stink, son. That's the new Brian translation. Like you're, you, you are stuck in your condition. So God in his graciousness, by grace, offers you a gift. By grace alone. Now, here's what faith alone means. Faith alone is your belief that the gift that has been offered by your heavenly Father will do that which God promises it will do. So in your bad breath condition, God extends to you the gift of a mint. Now you have to believe that the mint has the power to actually change your condition. That is faith. It is your belief that the gift can change you. Now Christ which we're going to talk about a lot next week, Christ alone, he's the mint. He's the one that does the work. He's the one that does the changing. He is offered to us as a gift by our Heavenly Father, and our faith in him alone is what allows us to receive the gift. Scripture tells us about all of this interaction that goes on. Our, it makes us aware of our condition. It tells us about the glory of our Father who by grace offers us a fix for our condition. 
It is our faith that receives it and believes that it can change us. And then it is Jesus Christ, the mint, that does the work. Now, here's my hope. All, all, by the way, to the glory of God the Father and to him alone. Now, here's my hope. Here's my hope. That every day, every time that you use a breath mint, every time that you brush your teeth, every time that you do anything to change the condition of your morning breath, you will remember, to God be the glory, Jesus wants to fix my bad breath. Amen? That's my hope. Take it home with you. Take the, use the mint right now. Like just, just right now use it to the glory of God and to the benefit of your neighbor. Amen? All right. So there, there is how we kind of help our minds differentiate between Christ alone, grace alone, and faith alone. And today I want to spend a lot of time talking about why it is faith alone that helps us overcome our sin condition. And here's the main question that I want to answer today because there is no question more vital than this. How, how can sinful man be reconciled to a holy God? If God is holy and perfect and we are not in our sin, how can perfection have relationship with that which is imperfect? How can sinful man be reconciled to a holy God? Now I'm going to give you the answer and then I'm going to go back and explain the answer. Don't you wish teachers would do this in school? Come on, students. Come on, kids. Come on, y'all in high school. Don't you wish the teacher would give you the answer and then give you the test? Right, I'll teach it to you after I give you the answers to the test. Right, so here's the answer to the test. How can sinful man be reconciled to a holy God? It is through justification by faith. That's the answer. Justification by faith alone is how you are made right with a holy and perfect God. Now, if you don't know what justification by faith means, hang on, I'm going to tell you. All right, so uh, two, first two quotes to just to kind of give us an idea about how important this idea of justification by faith was to the reformers, to the men that, that started this, this revolution that ended in what we know to be the Protestant church of which we are part. Two quotes, first from John Calvin. John Calvin said, justification by faith is the hinge on which all true religion turns. And then Martin Luther, the man we just heard a little bit about and who kind of kick-started this whole thing, he said that justification is the article by which the church stands and falls. But, but until, we, until we fully understand justification and then by faith alone, we can't really answer the question that is most vital of how this takes place. Now, in our connect groups, we, we've been reading together over the last five weeks, four to five weeks, five weeks. We've been reading together out of the book of Galatians. And in the second chapter of Galatians, Paul laid out for us how a lot of this stuff works together. This was a central theme in a lot of Paul's writing. It shows up all over his writings, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, the book of Romans. We're going to look at that a little bit later today too. But Paul said this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, telling us how we achieve justification. He said this. Uh, chapter 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul was a little bit repetitive. Did you get what he was trying to, to, to say? As a matter of fact, Paul is actually writing this to Galatia, to the church at Galatia to correct them. And so Paul draws this strong contrast between two things, which is works of the law and faith. And then Paul says it over and over and over in one verse, by the way. No person is justified by works of the law, but by faith. So we receive Jesus in faith in order to be justified, not by works, but by faith. In case you didn't get that, it was by faith and not by works. And in case you didn't get that, it was not by works, but by faith. Okay, I was way more excited about that than y'all. It's okay. But, but I just wanna, I want us to see, anytime the Bible repeats itself, remember we learned this at the beginning of the year? Got to look for stuff that repeats itself. Anytime the Bible repeats itself, somebody's trying to get a point across. So we got to look for that kind of stuff. Paul here wants to communicate to us what justification or how justification is received through faith and how it is not, not by works. So let's, I want to give you three characteristics, three aspects of justification so that we understand what it is and then how we receive it. Now I'm talking a little bit fast today. Y'all going to have to listen really fast because i got a lot of stuff for us to get through. We're going to read a lot of the Bible today. It's going to be a lot of fun if you guys will hang out and chill with me. We're going to have fun learning from the Bible today, but we got to move kind of quick. So y'all going to have to t- listen faster, all right? Listen faster. Here we go. The nature of justification, if you're taking notes, the nature of justification is declarative, not transformative. If those are words that aren't in your common vocabulary, don't worry, they weren't in mine either. I had to look them up. Justification is declarative, not transformative. Here's the question that that the reformers were trying to answer in light of how the Roman Catholic Church perceived justification to take place. Here's the question they were trying to answer. Is justification something that that is foreign to us and something that we receive, or is it something that we become? Is justification a process by which the unrighteous become fully righteous? Or is justification something that those who are unrighteous are given and therefore it stands alone? Now, Roman Catholicism argued that that justification was somehow this infusion of grace into the sinful person by which God, through a process, would make them righteous or holy so that they could be in relationship with him. In the the Latin version of the Bible that Roman Catholics primarily used to teach and to learn and to study and all this, it was called the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible. In the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible, everywhere that justification was translated into the Latin for them to study, it was translated as to be made righteous. You tracking? So there's this process that you were made righteous. But then the reformers come along, a bunch of troublemakers, and they're like, hey, why don't we not read this in the Latin, but why don't we read the Bible in the original languages that it was written, Hebrew, the Old Testament primarily, and Greek in the New. So let's read it in the original language and see if we find anything different. And what they found is that this concept of justification, both in Hebrew and in Greek, was not a process by which one was made righteous, but it was a process by which one was declared to be righteous. Now, I use a lot of big words and I talk really fast. Let me give you an illustration on a level that helps me understand it. 
I like courtroom drama. Not the real stuff. I like it when it's on TV and it's fake and I know that none of that stuff really happened because it don't make my head hurt so much. Or my heart, for that matter, too. I love courtroom television. I like to watch the TV shows that are set in a courtroom and you got lawyers and judges and defendants and guilty people. I, I think I could have been a lawyer, as a matter of fact. Like, if I wasn't a preacher, I think I could have been a pretty good lawyer. I like to argue. Ask my wife. She'll say amen. Like, I like to argue. As a matter of fact, when I preach, I kind of preach from the perspective of, of a lawyer. I want to build a case. I want to make an argument and then convince you of what is true. Now, I have the, the, the reason I like being a preacher is because I know what is true and I don't have to figure it out. But when I watch these courtroom TV shows, what I like about them so much is how invested I feel into the lives of, of the, the people who are on trial, right? I, I love this. But, but here's, here's what sometimes get me, gets me a little bit, is that the verdict of a trial doesn't always adequately or accurately represent guilt or innocence. And the way that these shows get you, right? The way that they make them so dramatic and the way that they, they hold your attention so much and they make you feel stuff that sometimes you don't want to feel in some of these shows is sometimes in these cases, they'll tell you or they'll show you that the person who's on trial, that they're guilty. They are absolutely 100% without a doubt guilty. And then through some loophole or some fancy high paid lawyer, however they lay it, you know how they lay it out, right? Like they find a loophole and then the guilty person goes free. In other cases, I don't know how they do this, just great writing in Hollywood, I suppose. Sometimes you find yourself rooting for the person that's guilty. Like you know they're guilty, but you kind of get why they're guilty. Like I understand, like I'd have done that too, right? You ever been there? Ever had that feeling? Like I'd have done the same thing they did and I wouldn't want to go to jail, so I really hope they don't go to jail. And then when they don't go to jail, you celebrate that a person and a guilty person went free. You ever watch these? I'm the only one who watched courtroom trauma. All right, because so, like, so, so I feel this. And then sometimes that what really hurts your heartstrings is somebody that you know is innocent is, is deemed to be guilty. Here's what all that means, because we understand that. We know that that's true. Was o, did OJ do it? We don't know. You see, the reason that that's true and the reason that we understand it is because the verdict does not actually determine guilt or innocence, does it? A judge or a jury foreman declaring someone as not guilty does not in fact make that person not guilty. They could be guilty as sin and be called righteous by the court system. That is biblical justification. It is God looking at sinful man, you and me, and though we are guilty, God declares us innocent or righteous. Are you? Doesn't matter. God declares. It's declarative. Now, there is a process through the gospel by which we are made to be more righteous. But that's called sanctification, the process by which we become more and more like our Savior, Jesus. That's called sanctification, not justification, and not the subject of today's message, so I gotta move on. That's called sanctification. Today we're gonna talk about what it means to be justified. Justified means that you are declared innocent, though you are, in fact, guilty. You see, if my justification depends on me, 
in any way, shape, or form. If my guilt or innocence is declared by anything that has to do with me, then I am woefully and inadequately lost and in trouble. If it depends a little bit on me and a little bit on Jesus, then it depends a little bit on me because Jesus is already perfect and I know my sin. I am so insecure in my sin, being able to secure my salvation, that that is the last thing that I want. And I pray to God because I know what is true of Scripture, that I am not transformed into a more righteous person, but I am declared righteous by God. The verdict is in and I am not guilty as I stand before God, though I am in fact a guilty man. And the same is true for you. So that is the nature of justification. It is a declaration, not a transformation, which leads us to the grounds by which God declares us just or righteous. The grounds of justification, what makes it so, is transferred righteousness. You see, God cannot simply call a man innocent who is not. That would make him unjust, right? For God to call someone innocent who is not innocent is an unjust thing. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that to do so is an abomination to God. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. It says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So for God to ignore sin altogether would be to remove his holiness, to remove his justness. It would make him unjust. So how then, if God cannot call that innocent which is not, how does he? Romans 3 verse 26 says it was that he does this, that he declares us righteous so that it, is, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what that verse means. That God is not only one that, the one that declares us just, but he does so because he's the one that justifies us. And he justifies us by faith in Jesus, it is our faith in Christ that God uses to declare us righteous, to declare us justified, and he is just in doing so because of how that trans transfer because of how that transfer takes place. Paul told us what that transfer is all about, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I told you I was going to move fast. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. Paul says, "For our sake, for our justification, for our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who had no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Look at me, look at me. Your sin has not been ignored. Your sin has been transferred. From you to Christ. This is what is known in the church as the doctrine of imputation. Imputation is to, to bring charges against. Christ has been charged with your sin. You have been charged with his innocence. 
because he knew no sin. God has placed on Jesus the penalty of your sin so that when Jesus was punished by God's wrath on the cross, your sin was punished with him. God has transferred our sin. So it is by this transfer that justification has the ability to take place. We know this in the church as the great exchange. Jesus has exchanged our sin with his righteousness. Yeah, we can clap for that. I got one person. We can clap that Jesus has taken our sin and given us his righteousness. Which leads us to the means of justification. We've got the nature, have the grounds by which it happens. Now the means by which it takes place. The means of justification is by faith alone. You see, the argument between the reformers and the Roman Catholic Church was not whether or not justification happened by faith. The argument was whether or not justification took place by faith alone and not faith added to something else, that being our works. So the reformers, again, leaning on the authority of Scripture, appealed to it. And this is what we see. I'm going to give these to you kind of rapid fire, a lot of verses all at once, and then we'll go back and talk about just a few of them. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You guys read this last week with Cameron as he taught through them. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Grace is a gift, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. And being found in him, that's Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on on faith. You guys, you see the theme? That it's by faith in Jesus that we're justified. Then Paul makes this really strong argument for justification by faith alone. Romans chapter 4 verses 1 through 5 says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? He's going to refer to Abraham in the Old Testament as an illustration. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to his flesh, according to his works? For if Abraham was justified by works, and he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed, that means faith. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him, this belief, as righteousness. It was his belief that God counted as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Here's what what the reformers saw. This idea of sola fide, faith alone. This was not a, a, a Pauline novelty. This wasn't something that Paul came up with. This was something that existed in the Old Testament according to Abraham, right? So the, 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 the Catholic Church would say that, that we are justified by the works, the things that we do, justified by how well we do and how good we are. 
that that added to our faith is what justifies us. And the reformers are saying, no, 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 no. And they use this text where Paul says, no, even before the law, Abraham lived before the Old Testament law. Abraham's faith is what was counted as righteous. He couldn't work because he didn't even know what work to do yet. It wasn't because he was a great man and did great things, but because he was a man who had great faith. It is his faith and only his faith that God counted towards his righteousness. And he goes on to say that, that when you, if you get payment for a gift, again, Cameron covered this a lot last week. If I give you something and then you pay me for it, it's not a gift. I didn't give that to you, you bought it. You can't buy salvation. You can't buy justification. You have to believe and that's how you get it. That's what it means to be justified by faith alone. Look at me. It is always the inclination of man when offered grace to work for it. It feels good to earn something, doesn't it? It feels good when somebody rewards you for the good that you do, for your hard work, for your excellent effort. And you should be excellent and you should work hard and you should do all of those things. But you're never going to be able to work hard enough or earn enough or be good enough to earn salvation. You can't do it. It is by grace alone received through faith, belief, trust alone that justifies you before a holy God. One more thing to write down and we'll move on. Righteousness. Righteousness is credited to one who does not work, but one who believes. See, when we set out to answer the question, why does faith, or why is faith the sole instrument of justification? Here's the answer. It's because faith as the sole instrument of justification is the only way that it can be in accordance with grace. Look at me. Grace is undeserved. It's unmerited. It is favor given to us by God, though we don't deserve it. That's what it means. That's, that's what grace is. It's a gift that is given, though you don't deserve it. God gives it. That's grace. So the minute that we begin to feel like we earned it or we deserve it, or we're entitled to it, or that, that God, God should give me that. The minute that we begin to do any of that, the gospel is gone. Because you don't need Jesus. You're, you're enough. You're enough. If grace is unmerited, then you have to not merit it. It's just English. <laughs> This is how, how, how the words work. If justification has anything to do with you, then what do you need Jesus for? If you're good enough, 
What do you need Jesus for? Faith does not do. It does not earn. It does not purchase. It is uniquely suited to grace because it is simply the outstretched hand offering nothing in return. Can, can, I, be, can, can I just be like pastor honest with you for a minute? Just all, all cards, right? Here we go. You're not a good person. I don't care what your mama said. You are not a good person. And you know it, don't you? Do your heads like this. You know it. In, in, the, in the deepest parts of you that you don't tell anybody else about, in the parts of you that you don't talk about at parties, you know that you are not a, you are not a good person. You have evil thoughts. Selfish intentions, greed, pride, we all do. We are not good people. And though those statements are troubling, they are such good news. Because though you are not a good person, God offers to you through faith an opportunity to be declared innocent. Your verdict is righteous before a holy and perfect God. And you can't do anything to get it except to believe, to trust, to have faith. You and I, we are bankrupt of anything that we have to offer God for our salvation. He needs nothing from us but offers us the opportunity to receive everything freely by our faith in Christ alone. And we're going to talk about that next week. So what do we do for today? Here's the truth of the matter. We are not saved by our good works. We are not saved because of anything that we have done. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved for our good works. You have been made into a new creation. You are a new thing because God has declared you innocent. You weren't innocent, but God declares you innocent. That means you're new, like you've got a fresh start. God looks at you and sees a live person where there was a dead person. What do you do with that? I would argue, if I were your lawyer, trying to make a case and convince you of the truth, because I've missed my calling as a pastor and became a lawyer, if I were to do that, here's what I would tell you. You have one course of action to take. As an innocent person, set free though you are guilty, your responsibility is to go and live like an innocent person. Yeah. Tim, brother, I love you. You always start my claps, man. I feel you. I love you, man, because I know your heart. Tim likes to clap for Jesus, (laughs) and I couldn't agree with him more. It is because of what Jesus has offered to us, because Jesus came, because God sent him, 
because he was offered as a gift to fix your condition. The only way to receive the gift is to believe that the gift can do what God says the gift can do. So what will you do with your new, fresh life? See what I did there? For the minute, you see that? What are you gonna do? Do, 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 you, do you go right out and continue to live like you did? Or do you go out and approach life like one who was saved, not by your works, but so that you could go and do good works in the name of the one who has saved you to the glory of God alone. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we delve into this idea, Father, of being justified, of being declared righteous through our faith and belief in your son, Jesus, God, it is my hope that you would help us help us to see our lives from a fresh perspective, from a new place, understanding that though we were dead, that we have been made alive. And now that we are alive, God, we are called to be alive for a purpose. And that is to live in such a way that brings honor and glory to your most majestic name. And Father, we are so grateful for the gift of your son, Jesus, that has been offered to us. God, would you help us now to receive that through faith? For the one here, Father, who doesn't know you and has yet to put their trust in you as Savior. God, I pray that today would be the moment of their salvation. That they would cling today, not to their efforts to be a good person and to try to live justly and rightly. But Father, they would lean into the grace that has been offered by you through your son Jesus and receive it by believing that we don't have to take one good step towards you, but to receive the gift of your son. God, we don't have to do one thing right, but to trust. God, would you help us to do that even in our weaknesses? We love you, God. We thank you for your powerful love on display through Jesus, your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.